right. Good evening, Eternal City Church. <laughs> All right. Like uh, Justin said, continuing our study in the book of Mark, uh, we're going to be in, uh, finishing up chapter 9 today. We're going to be going through verses 30 through 50 in uh, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. Then they left that place and made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. Then they left that place. This is a, 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 a series of events that happened after the, after the Mount of Transfiguration. And again, Mark, we're going to be going from event to event in the Mark. Um, a couple different uh, instances here in the book of Mark as well tonight. So, then they left that place that made their way through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know it. Why did he want anyone to know it? This is right before Jesus is, is this is during the time when Jesus is, is beginning to explain to his disciples his whole purpose in coming. He's plainly communicating to them what was to come about his crucifixion, his, 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 his crucifixion um, that was prophesied. And Jesus, he says here, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. So he needed some time alone with them. And so he took that time away to, to, to teach his disciples about uh, the resurrection, his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. He was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. And that term, Son of Man, and let me, let me say this real quick too. When Jesus talked about his death, he always mentioned the resurrection. He never only talked about one aspect of it. He always talked about um, his death and resurrection. They will kill him, and in three days he will rise again. And, and I think part of that reason was when he talked about the resurrection and not just the death, it took away the reproach from, from himself. And at the same time, what it should have done is taken away the grief from the disciples too, knowing that not only am I going to die, but... There's going to be a resurrection. I'm going to rise from the dead, too. So when he did that, he always mentioned both. It was never just one. He always mentioned the death and the resurrection, and I don't think that was by mistake. And he said, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men. The word betrayed means to give over treacherously. So the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is, is a messianic term, too, at the same time. They knew that term from the book of Daniel, chapter 7. So it was kind of, I'm sure the disciples were thinking to themselves, okay, we know about the Son of Man, that's a messianic term, but he's referring to himself as the Son of Man, and at the same time, talking about being killed. That was not in their mindset when they were, when they were thought about the Son of Man. They didn't think of somebody who was going to be coming and dying and, and, and suffering that torturous death. So that had to be going through their mind as well. But he said, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. And that word betrayed means to give over treacherously. And there's a paradox here. I'm going to read a few scriptures, and there's a paradox here in what he's saying. He said, I'm going to be betrayed. This is the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. And this is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. Very familiar passage of scripture, and I'm going to read a few verses here. And it says, we all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him, referring to Jesus Christ, for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. 
He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. And who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man at his death, although he had done no violence and had not, had not spoken deceitfully. So it's talking about his innocence and in all of this. A prophecy, remember. Verse 10, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you, when you make him a restitution offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. Jesus Christ will justify many. We are made justified because of Jesus Christ. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So this is talking about Jesus' sacrificial offering here, the restitution offering. This is what he's talking about. And he said, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and this is part of that prophecy. Let's continue. Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. This is Peter speaking in, in the book of Acts. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You hear that? He was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. And Jesus said, I will be betrayed into the hands of men. But here it says, he will be betrayed. He will be delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says of him, I saw the Lord ever before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So, Jesus said, I'm going to be betrayed, handed over treacherously into the hands of men. Verse 23, though he was de delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. So, there's a paradox here. God's plan and, and man's actions. God's sovereignty, man's actions. Let's look at one more. Acts chapter 4. For, in fact... In this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predetermined to take place. So even though Jesus is being portrayed into the hands of men, the only reason they can do that is because it's God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge. So there's a paradox between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And they're working hand in hand. And the Bible talks about that a lot. So when he's saying, and, and, and I'm sure that, that, that didn't make sense to the, to the disciples. Like I said, they weren't prepared for a suffering Savior, a suffering Messiah. They, looking, they were looking for a conquering king to come and free them from the Romans. So when he says, I'm going to be betrayed over into the hands of men, there's a, bit of, there's a paradox there. Okay, let's go back. They will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand what he was saying, but at the same time, they didn't want to say nothing. They were afraid to ask him. See, the resurrection in their mind was a future event. They expected a resurrection of all people at the end. And Jesus is talking about a personal resurrection. 
They didn't understand Jesus' mission. And also at the same time, when Peter, when Jesus talked to Peter about being, being killed, Peter rebuked him, remember? And Jesus rebuked Peter <laughs> and called him the devil. So they might have been saying, listen, I know when Peter challenged this before, you know, Jesus kind of handled him harshly. I don't want to go through that. So I'm just, just going to say nothing. They were afraid to ask him. They remained ignorant. And, and I can relate to this. So a lot of times we remain ignorant because we're afraid to inquire. And I know personally, I've done that more than once. Afraid to ask a question because I didn't want to appear ignorant. Afraid to ask, what you mean by that? Because I want to pretend like I already knew. And that should never, especially when it comes to theology, the Bible says, um, if, if, if any of you lack wisdom, let them ask of God, who gives to all men freely, liberally. But they were afraid to ask and not, not because Jesus would, Jesus would never, he wasn't going to be harsh with them. He, would, he, didn't, he wouldn't have minded them asking, but because of their own ignorance, they were afraid to ask him. And we cannot be afraid to ask God questions we don't have, or, or, or ask any other believer or pastor or whatever. If you don't understand something, ask. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Verse 33, then they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. He says, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because on the way, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Now, here we have the disciples arguing with one another about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus knew they were arguing about that, and asked them, okay, what were you asking about? And the Bible says they were silent. Their whole concept of leadership had to be redefined, redirected, because of what, how they had been taught. And even in our culture today, there's a, a concept about leadership, how you become great in our culture. And they had, and Jesus had said to them one time, it's, you're, this is not going to be like the Gentiles. We don't rule like the Gentiles do. He said to them in another place. Their concept of greatness and leadership had to be re redefined and, and re reversed. And leadership and greatness wasn't accomplished through aggressiveness or privilege or any of those things they were used to. But it was through humility. And Jesus exemplified this all the time before them. And it's kind of ironic that they would argue amongst themselves about who would be the greatest when Jesus had just said to them, I'm going to die and be crucified. And, 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 and die for your sins, and they're arguing about, and, 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 and Peter and James and John had just came off the Mount of Transfiguration too. So they may have been like, well, you know, we saw some stuff that the rest of y'all didn't see. So that might be an indication that we're going to get into some positions in the kingdom that's going to be probably above the rest of you disciples who didn't see what we, we just saw. So their whole mindset had to be changed. Jesus says, the Son of Man come not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He said that to them. 
His whole ministry was based on humility and service. And here they are asking, fighting over who's going to be the greatest, arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And it's easy to do that when you, when you are given a position of authority. It's easy to do that. They were preoccupied with their own ambition. In the midst of us, they were preoccupied with their own ambition and making a name for themselves. Making a name for themselves in using God's kingdom to make a name for themselves. That's what they were doing. And notice, Jesus didn't, didn't, didn't uh, correct them for having a desire to be great. He corrected them on the matter of becoming great. He corrected them on how to become great. And we have to trust God's going to honor our service and our greatness, quote-unquote, in history and in eternity. See, you may not get recognized here on earth for whatever it is you do. You may not get recognized here, but you have to trust that God's going to honor you in history. When you look at Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith and all those people that are, quote-unquote, honored in the hall of faith by having great faith, they didn't think to themselves, I'm trying to get in the hall of faith. They were just living their lives, honoring God, and God later honored them in, 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 in one of his uh, authoritative books, inspired writings. God honored them. And we're talking about them because God decided to honor them, not because they were trying to make a name for themselves, you know, when they were being eaten by lions. You know, they weren't saying, I want to I be great. Come on, Mr. Lion. <laughs> I want to be, no, no, no. They were just living by faith, and God, in his grace, decided to honor them. And so here the disciples, are, are, Jesus is saying, listen, um, the way to become great is through humility. And they're like, okay, who's going to serve me in the kingdom, Jesus? Who's going to serve me? Right over their head. Constantly, stuff was going over their head. And it says, what you are arguing about on the way, it says, verse 34, but they were silent. It says they were silent. Why were they silent? Earlier, they were silent, it says, because of their ignorance. Because of their own ignorance. Here, they were silent because of their pride. They were silent earlier because they didn't want to come across as ignorant. Well, I don't really know what he's talking about, but I don't want him to know that, so I, mean, I ain't just going to say nothing. But here when Jesus questions, what were y'all talking about? What, what were y'all arguing about? They were silent because, because of their pride. They knew that what they were doing weren't right. That's, we shouldn't be arguing about this. And I, don't want, I, didn't want, I didn't know Jesus was listening. I didn't know he heard that conversation. Pride. He says, sitting down, verse 35, sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. If you want to be first, you must be last, and you must be a servant. Servanthood. We are servant leaders. In whatever ministry you have, if you're a leader, you are a servant leader. Elders and deacons are servant leaders. We are not anybody great or to be honored. We are servant leaders. That's what ministry is about. It's about serving people. First, last, and servant. If you want to be first, be last. He that exalts himself, Jesus said, shall be cut down, shall be abased. But he that humbles himself shall be exalted. It's reverse order. 
See, in our culture, if you want to be great, you exalt yourself. You put yourself out there. And, 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 and hope people will acknowledge you and make you great. And that's prideful. But Jesus said, he that humbles himself, I'll make him great. And then he took a child, had him stand among them, and taking him in his arms, he said, whoever welcomes one little child such as, such as this in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but him who sent me. A child is a symbol of humility. Jesus took a young child and sat him among, and they were probably sitting in a semicircle. That's how they sat. They probably in a semi, and Jesus called this young child and, and, and had him stand in the midst of all these men, which can be intimidating for a little boy, to come and stand among a whole bunch of men. And Jesus called this young child. He used child several times, children several times, and, and had him stand in the midst of all these men and said, listen, if you want to be great, you need to be like this little boy. Humble. He has no status, none whatsoever, no status. He's, he's dependent on other people. He said, you need to be childlike in order to be great. Not childish. There's a difference. We are not to be childish, but childlike. Caring for people of lowly status is rewarded. The most insignificant persons who could not return nothing, the child couldn't return anything to them. So the disciples were to forget about rank, preeminence, and all of that stuff and just serve and not worry about greatness. Whoever welcomes this little child welcomes me. Whoever is, treats with love, consideration, and that's expected by Jesus from us. Whoever treats with love and consideration as expected by Christ himself and doing it for Christ's sake. I'm doing this because I love God. I'm doing this for the kingdom's sake, not to be seen, not to become great, if you do this with the right motive, it's talking about motives here. See, we can have the wrong motive for doing stuff. We all know that we've all done stuff with the wrong motive. Amen? We've all done stuff for our own self-benefit, whatever that may be. And it could be something good. I feed the hungry for good for my own benefit. I give to charitable organizations because I can write it off later as a tax write-off. Not because I want to meet a need, but this is going to benefit me next year. It's a good deed you're doing, but your motive is wrong for doing it. And Jesus is talking about having the right motive for doing things, having the right motive. Okay. Oops, sorry. Verse 38. John said to him, teacher... We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus, because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward." John said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he wasn't following us. He wasn't part of our group. And Jesus said, don't stop him, because there's no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. So the disciples thought they had special privilege because they were chosen by Jesus. 
Mark chapter 3, he also appointed 12. He also named them apostles to be with him, to send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Just like that guy was doing, Jesus gave the disciples authority to do that. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the 12 and began to send them out by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And they were driving out many demons, anointing many sick, sick people with olive oil and healing them. So Jesus commissioned them to do that. But that guy they saw out there, he wasn't part of that. And so the disciples thought they had special privilege because they were, quote-unquote, deputized by Jesus himself. So, yo, bro, listen, who, told, who gave you authority to drive out demons? Jesus gave us authority. Jesus himself anointed us to do this. Where'd you get your authority from? Because he wasn't part of their group. He wasn't part of their church. He didn't go to Eternal City. So what, what do you, you know what I'm saying? You know, we got to be careful that because somebody's not a part of us, he said, you know, because he wasn't following us. You see what they said, following us. God works in many ways outside of a particular church, a denomination, a group, or everything. So we ought to just focus on the task that God has given us and not worry about other people. There's an Old Testament verse in the book of Numbers, chapter 11, where we saw this before. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He brought 70 men from the elders of the people and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the spirit that was on Moses and placed the spirit on the 70 elders. So, God anointed and gave the same spirit to the 70 elders that he gave to Moses. As the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. They began to speak God's word, but they never did it again. Verse 26, two men had remained in the camp. They weren't part of that group. They remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other Medad. The spirit rested on them. They were among those listed that had not gone out to the tent. They were supposed to, they were part of the 70 elders, but they weren't, they didn't go out to the tent with the other 70. And they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, hey Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, assistant to Moses since his youth, responded, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Make them stop. But Moses asked him, are you jealous on my account? Moses like, what? You, you, you jealous on my account? Because they're prophesying? If, listen to this. If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Moses said, I wish all y'all could, could do that and speak the word like that. He said, I wish all the Lord's people were. Verse 30, then Moses returned to the camp along with the elders of Israel. Moses said, I ain't concerned with that. I wish all y'all would do that. Just like, just because they weren't out in the, in the tent with the others, but, they, but, the, but the Spirit fell on them as well in the camp. And just like this guy in the New Testament, John said, he wasn't part of us. He wasn't part of us. We, and, 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 and Jesus told him, verse 39, don't stop him, Jesus said. And he gave three reasons for not stopping him. First of all, he said, 
There is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. He said, listen, if they're doing this in my name, they can't say nothing bad about me after doing that. They can't speak evil of me if they're doing this in my name. So don't concern yourself with that. If they're doing it in my name, and, and, and the Bible says they were casting out demons in Jesus' name. So it wasn't like they were false and they didn't know. The Bible says they were doing it. They were casting out demons in Jesus' name, just like the disciples were. And he said, if they're doing that in my name, they can't speak evil of me. And then he said, for whoever is not against us is for us. In other words, there's no middle ground when it comes to me. When it comes to Jesus, when it comes to salvation, there is no middle ground. There's no such thing as almost saved. I'm almost there. I'm getting there. No, either you are or you ain't. There ain't no middle ground. You can't, you can't have one foot in Jesus' camp and another foot in Muhammad's camp. No, there's no middle ground. And he said, he did not with us is a force. Either he's on our side or he's against us. So don't stop him. And then he said, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to the Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. Gestures done in Jesus' name will be rewarded. You know, our motivation is not reward. But the Bible talks a whole lot about rewards. Did you know that? The Bible talks a whole lot about rewards. And so it's not about um, being rewarded is not a bad thing. I'm not saying, you know, us, 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 even in this life, receiving a reward is a bad thing, whatever that may be. That's not a bad thing. It's your motivation for doing what you do. If people want to honor you and reward you for what you do, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that, um, whatever that may be. But it boils down to your heart and your motivation and even, how, and even how you receive the reward. How you receive the reward. I remember hearing years ago... Um, the Winans, the Gospel of the Winans. Um, I was at a Winans concert, and Marvin was talking about, along these lines, kind of, he was um, talking about, you know, being honored, you know, on the Grammy Awards and whatever, and then going home. They won an award, a Grammy Award, um, and he remembered, he said, God was speaking to him on the way home. You know, God was saying, you know, it's, it's, it's okay, you got an award, that's great, but God said, I didn't call you to win Grammys. I called you to win souls. I didn't call you to, you, you, you don't do this so that you can get a Grammy Award. If, that's, if they want to do that, that's fine. But remember, your safe focus. Remember, your mission is souls, not awards. If you never, if, if nobody ever notices you in this life, it's okay. And that, and that, and that sometimes can be difficult because we can feel like our work is done in vain and nobody's noticing you know, and I'm doing all of this for not, for nothing. No, you're not. It will be rewarded, whether in this life or in the life to come. And so, and, 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 and it's very humbling. We need to, and another, another story from a concert, <laughs> Lorna Harris. Um, he was talking about the uh, same thing, winning an award, and then going home that night, and his wife had a note on the Frigidaire, don't forget to take out the garbage in the morning. He's like, well, I just won two Grammy Awards. <laughs> You know, but the point was, remain humble. Don't, don't forget who you are and who your first ministry is. Yeah, this Grammy's great, but listen, you got to take out the garbage in the morning. Remember who you are. Remember your place. Your first ministry is your family. 
So don't get so caught up in the world's accolades. The world will give you accolades one day and cut you down the next, and we've all seen it. The, world's, the world will applaud you one day, and the next day treat you like a dog on Facebook and Instagram. They're fickle. The world is very fickle, so we can't get caught up in that. So, for whoever is not against us, is for us, no matter the ground, and whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of my name, since you belong to Messiah, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. Verse 42. But whoever causes the downfall of one of these little ones who believe in me, it will be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell, the unquenchable fire where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. And he says the same thing about the fire. I'm, I'm going to move ahead. Verse 47. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. So if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. If your foot causes your downfall, cut it off. And if your eye causes your downfall, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So he gives three, three examples. He uses three things. He uses hand, foot, and eye. And they are metaphors relating to the seriousness of sin. The hand can represent uh, what you do. The foot can represent where you go. And the eye can represent what you see. The hand don't take hold of sin. The foot don't walk in the sin. And the eye don't look at sin. So those are metaphors for, for behavior that can either be sin or lead you to sin. If your hand causes you to, your downfall, he says, is cut it off in extreme measure. Get rid of whatever is causing you to sin. If your foot, if you're tempted to take you somewhere that you don't need to go, where you may sin, don't go. Cut it off. Get rid of it, whatever that may be. And if your eyes cause you to look at something, Gouge them out, get rid of it, whatever that may be. Dilly-dallying in sin is very dangerous and deadly. We cannot play with sin. We're going to look at how serious Jesus takes it in a minute. And we need to learn as believers to limit our freedom for the sake of others. We are free to do a whole lot of stuff. But... The question is, do I need to do that, and should I do that? And this is, going to co- is this going to cause somebody else's downfall? It may be, okay, not sin. Everything that is, uh, not, the Bible talks about um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, um, I'm, 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 I'm free to do everything, but everything's not beneficial. You know, just because something is not sin doesn't mean it's okay to do it. And it's easy to forget that sometimes. And we say, well, it's not sin, so it's okay, you know. And it may not be, but... 1 Corinthians 8 talks about not eating meat in the presence of my brother if it's going to cause my brother to fall. So if it's going to cause somebody else to sin, I'm going to limit my freedom and not do that. If, if eating pork in the presence of my brother, and he thinks it's sinful to do that, he's not free yet, he's still weak, the Bible calls him weak in his mind, 
I won't eat the pork chop. I love my brother more than I love a, a piece of meat. I'm not going to go here. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to say this. It's not sin, but he thinks it is. And if he thinks it and it's going to cause him to fall, I'm going to refrain from doing it. I'm going to limit my freedom until they mature. Romans 14, that's what Romans 14 is all about. Limiting our freedom for the sake of our brother. So, foot, hand, and eye, whatever that is. And he says the reason is it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to two eyes be thrown into hell. Into hell, Jesus says. Hell, the Greek word is Gehenna. And its imagery is from the, the Hinnom Valley, the Valley of Hinnom, which was used in the Old Testament for human pagan sacrifice and as a garbage dump. Pagan kings uh, had worship centers at the, at the Valley of Hinnom, and they would sacrifice their children to Moloch, the god of Moloch in the Old Testament. King Ahaz was one of them in 2 Kings chapter 23. The Valley of Hinnom. And let's look at a, at a few scriptures. Hell. Jesus talked about hell a lot. Okay? Sorry. Isaiah chapter 66. For just as the new heavens and the new earth... I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I need to go back. I'm sorry. It is better for you, verse 43, and if your hand causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed. I'm sorry, I'm going up to verse. But whoever causes the downfall of one of the little ones who believe in me, it will be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck. That's where I want to be. If a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. A heavy millstone. This is a millstone. A picture of Old Testament millstone. And Jesus said, it would be better for him if one of these were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. And here's a picture of that right there. Can you see? It's hung around his neck. There's no way he's going to survive that. Let me read a, a commentary, uh, one of the commentaries from this. The millstone of which Jesus speaks is the top stone of the, of the tube between the, which the grain is crushed. The reference is not to the handmill, but to the much heavier stone drawn by a donkey. In the middle of the top stone, whether of a handmill or of a donkey drawn mill, there is a hole, which we just saw, through which grain can be fed so as to be crushed between the two stones. The presence of this hole explains the phrase that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck. With this millstone around his neck, he will surely drown. Jesus said, that's how serious I take you causing one of my children to stumble. It will be better for you if this happened to you than to cause one of my little ones to stumble. That's a serious thing. Sin is very serious to God. That's how serious he takes this. And then he says, hell it's better to, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, into Gehenna. Isaiah chapter 66. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, this is the Lord's declaration. So your offspring and your name will endure. 
All mankind will come to worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. Listen to this. They will see the dead bodies of the men who rebelled against me, for their worm will never die. We read that, remember? Their worm dies not. Their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all mankind. He's talking about hell here. He's talking about hell here. Matthew chapter 25. Then he will answer them, I assure you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Again, he's talking about hell. But they will go into eternal punishment. Notice he says, not just punishment, he says eternal punishment, everlasting. It's not, it's not ending. And he uses the term eternal before, before punishment and eternal life. So it's not, it's not annihilationism, Jehovah's Witnesses. It's eternal punishment. And they will go into, into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So there's eternal punishment, then there's eternal life. If the punishment is temporary, so is the life. But that's not what he said. He said eternal punishment as well as eternal life. Both of them are everlasting. The wicked get eternal punishment. Believers get eternal life. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for which you also are suffering, since it is, a, since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Listen to that. He said, it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to reward with rest you who are afflicted along with us. Our reward is going to be rest from the affliction of the unbelievers. This will take place, this is when it's going to happen, at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angel, angels, verse 8, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says God is going to take vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are hard verses, church. The Bible is very plain about what's going to happen to, to folk who are believers and those who are non-believers. It's very plain. The Bible doesn't, doesn't, doesn't speak in, in secret when it comes to this. It says, taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he specified, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't say, who do not believe whatever religion you want. Who do not believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not the gospel of Muhammad. Not the gospel of Harry Krishna. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Very specific. Verse 9, these will pay the penalty... Listen to the language. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, not temporary. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence. Listen to that. From the Lord's presence. They're not going to be in his presence. That's what hell is, being away from God's presence eternally. Away from the presence, from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. That's hell. Away from the presence of the Lord eternally. So he's saying every influence of sin must be rejected because of the consequences here. 
Sin leads to death, for the wages of sin is death, and ultimately eternal death, which is what we're talking about here. Hell is eternal death. The wages of sin will lead you straight to hell. And we can't, we can't sugarcoat this. These, these verses are hard, and that's why you don't hear them taught a lot in churches, because they're hard to deal with. But that's what, this, this, this is the reality, and that's what Jesus said. It's better for you to cut off whatever is causing you to sin than to end up here. It's better for you to sacrifice whatever you love. And, and listen, sometimes we, there's sins that we just love and we don't want to let go of. But is it worth this is the question. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world, Jesus said, and loses, forfeits his soul for, for some temporary pleasure of satisfying your flesh? It feels good, and it does. But is it worth you going to hell over? Is it worth it? We sacrifice so much for so little. I've done it more than once. Sacrifice so much for so little. David sacrificed the kingdom of God. His kingship, he sacrificed his kingship over one night of passion. One night of passion. He sacrificed his kingship over one night of passion. And only by God's grace. It's only because of God's grace that he didn't lose everything. He, he paid for it for the rest of his life. He said, that, he said, the sword shall never depart from your house. He did. He paid for it, the consequences. But he risked it all because he was peeking on the, on the roof and decided he wanted this for one night. And what are we sacrificing for a temporary pleasure, whatever that may be? All right, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt shall lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. All scholars agree with that. They were like, we don't really know what Jesus is talking about. (laughs) This is a very difficult passage to interpret. Verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. And... it possibly means, so I was thinking it means, talking about a fiery trial. Salt is used in, in the Bible for several, several purposes. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices were used, um, were salted. The covenant of sacrifice, they, were used, they used salt in their sacrifices. But salt here, it says everyone will be salted with fire. And scholars um, disagree on whether it means everyone, period, or just every believer. So it could be, mean either one, either every believer or every person in the world. Everyone will be salted with fire. And, and, and salted means purified um, with judgment. And, and for the believer, um, it's, it's used to purify our lives. Um, salt is used, like I said, as a preservative. And it's used um, referring to fiery trials in our lives. Um, fire represents judgment. Now, we are not judged for our sins, but the judgment for the non-believer is eternal, is eternal fire. Um, but for us, see, God uses these things to bring us closer to himself. You know, so we all going to be, and we all go through, through, through things in life that are sanctifiers, quote unquote. And I believe this is what this is talking about. We are going to be salted with some stuff that's going to sanctify us and build, and build up our relationship and, and bring us closer to God. So everyone will be salted with fire. And then he says, salt is good, 
But if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you make it salty? So, and even, even naturally with salt, when, it's amazing what salt does to food. It's amazing what salt does to food, particularly potatoes and eggs. If you ever try to eat a potato without salt, it ain't, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's hard. So some things you need salt for. So salt is good, it says, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how shall it be salty again? Um, Matthew chapter 5, ye are, and Jesus Jesus talking to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth. So you are the earth preserver. Salt is used as a, preserv- is a preservative. But if the salt should lose its taste, in other words, if we should mess up our witness by not living holy sacrificial lives, we lose, we lose our witness before the world when we do that. He said, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, if we don't live like we should before the world, how can it be made salter again? It's no, no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. And when, that, and when we don't live the way we should, we become, we become uh, uh, a mockery to the world. When we don't live, quote-unquote, salty lives, holy lives, the world makes fun of us. And we've all seen it happen in, with, 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 with well-known um, uh, ministries whether it was a pastor or whomever, who, who messed up, whatever that may be, or however that was done, and it became a, a mockery to the world. So he's saying, you're the salt of the earth, but if you lose your saltiness, if you don't live the way you should, um, it's going to have an effect on your witness in the world. So for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor, how can it be made salty again? Have salt among yourselves. In other words, be holy. Live righteous before the world, amongst yourselves so that you won't become a bad witness uh, for the world. And then he says, and be at peace with one another. In the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, and also in Ezekiel, the sacrifices were, were, um, were to be salted. They would use salt in their sacrifices. And it was a sign of the eternal covenant God made with them. And he says, we are, as the people of God, are to have, be at peace with one another. There's a scripture in, 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 in Romans chapter 14. It says we are to pursue things that pursue peace amongst ourselves. We are to Romans chapter 14 verse 9, I think it is. We are to pursue things that would bring about peace among ourselves. Um, so we are to be at peace with one another. Now, that may require some hard conversations. You know, the Bible talks about um, 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 maintaining the unity of peace endeavoring to keep the unity of peace amongst ourselves, and, and we ought to do that, um, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. And I think we're in a place now in the church um, where we are being challenged to be at peace with one another over social issues, if you will, you know, um, and we ought to be at peace with one another. We can't, see, see even, even how we address and deal with disagreement amongst ourselves in the church is the witness of the world, even how we do that. And if we can't even talk to each other about our disagreements, if we just talk at each other on social media about whatever the issue may be, if we just uh, uh, blog about each other, if we just tweet about each other and, 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 and have messages about the opposition rather than if you have odd against your brother, go to your brother. The world sees that. You don't see the world sees the, our disagreement amongst ourselves and how we are um, handling that disagreement amongst ourselves. They are. And I've cried about this. And it, it, that's old. But my point, 
we need to be at peace with one another. And as we prepare to take communion, and I'm done, I'm just about done. As we prepare to take communion, let us remember Jesus died for us. He has a bride. Okay? Um, He loves that bride. And we need to be the type of bride that the world will see and, and, and say to themselves, there's something about that Jesus character that those folks down at that church there in Wilkinsburg, there's something about him. I've seen them have disagreements, but they come out that building loving each other. They have disagreements, but they come out that building smiling, loving each other in the midst of their disagreements. So as we take communion tonight, let us repent, if need be, of our bad attitude about um, fellow believers who disagree. Let us have salt amongst ourselves. Let us be at peace with one another. Jesus said, salt is good, but if the salt should lose its flavor... I don't want to lose my flavor as an individual. I don't want us to lose our, lose our flavor as a local church called Eternal City. So as we take of this communion, we're going to sing a song, and we're going to partake of communion. Let us think. While we're singing, let us think and meditate on the song as well as how do we maintain our peace amongst ourselves here locally as, a, as, a, as Eternal City. We start here. We start at Jerusalem, which is, this is our little Jerusalem. And let us, how, how we maintain our peace here locally, individually first, and then locally, and then how that spreads abroad. Let's pray real quick. Father, we thank you, we bless you, we glorify you for just being who you are. You are God, and beside you there is no other. We thank you for your word. And Lord, we can never do justice to your word as we teach it and preach it, Lord. But thank you for your word. It is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. We give you glory, we give you honor, and we thank you that you loved us enough to take the time to write it down. And Lord, we'll give you glory, we'll give you honor, and we'll give you praise, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.